0: Welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Rahab Paracha, Sustainable Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. As always, I'm joined by David Coombs and Will McIntosh-White, Fund Managers for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Fund Ranges. Morning both.
1: Good Good morning.
0: So, on this month's episode, David, Will and I will be discussing the UK economy and why it's looking more and more likely that a recession is ahead. Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, or DE&I, and how we think about diversity-related issues for the companies in our portfolios. And finally, Nike, a long-term holding in our core funds that continues to impress us with their approach to branding and engaging their customer base. But before we get on with the show, here's Craig with the usual T's and C's to keep us all on the straight and narrow.
1: This podcast is intended for professional investors and must not be shared with a non-professional audience. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager, and coverage of any assets must be taken into context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect investment recommendations. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance.
0: I think I speak for most people when I say it's pretty difficult to conjure up very much that feels positive in the UK at the moment, although the sudden September heatwave has definitely helped my mood this week. And I know we might sound a little bit like a broken record at this point, talking about UK recession incoming, but it does feel more inevitable than before. Wilco's gone bust, the future of Pizza Hut in the UK hangs in the balance as it battles ongoing debt, and UK fashion retailer Superdry was forced to suspend shares after it missed its accounts deadline and is under a cash crunch. And that's without mentioning the state of housing, where the rapid rise of interest rates is hitting consumers hard. Now, given this backdrop, Will, what are your thoughts on the UK and how you're reflecting this in the portfolios?
2: Well, I think the first thing to think about is some of those names you just reeled off because they're not exactly the highest quality UK names Harsh. going. <laughs> uh, no offence. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, Pete's hard. Wilco well, okay. They've ended up going under because of the pretty rubbish business models, right, and the squeeze in the middle that we've talked about. So I think...
1: I'm not sure Wilker's in the middle, but... yeah not in the middle, but yeah, yeah, yeah. well... Um, Generally speaking, yeah, I agree.
2: And uh, so to a certain extent, I guess you've got to be careful about drawing conclusions from names like that going under. But clearly... The fact that they've still managed to survive however many years up to this point shows something has changed. And that's obviously, you know, slightly more difficult consumer environment, higher interest rate environment, clearly weighing on that. I guess when I was thinking about the way we were going to talk about the UK, part of me stepped back and sort of said, why do we actually care? Um, you know, we're a global portfolio. We can invest anywhere. We can buy US treasuries and hedge out the currency risk. So we don't necessarily need to own gilts. The UK market is 4% of the global economy, I think now, or 4% of global markets. So dare I say, increasingly irrelevant, to be perfectly honest.
1: Although most of our investors live in it.
2: Yes. Well, that is also, that's very, (laughs) very true. So, So we are here. Most of our investors are here. The currency is still a big factor as well, because yes, we can hedge everything that we own overseas to take that currency factor out. But if a currency plummets and we don't benefit from that, then all of our investors are technically poorer from a global perspective. So I do think these are all things we do need to consider. And clearly, if we think the UK economy is under pressure, then actually we can look to hedge our portfolios and and use gilts to sort of a Make gains and be hedge an overall risk off market, so it is worth the consideration. Clearly, the economy, it's been. Well, you if you're making it a point. We're talking about UK recession again. I don't think we've talked about it too much, but we have a bit this year. I was looking at a piece of research that was saying oh you know, global recession or US recession coming in 12 months. And I was pretty sure I read that same person saying that 12 months ago. Um, and here we are. And economies have generally, particularly the US, but UK as well, been more resilient than people have thought. And that interest rate mechanism taken longer to feed through. And We know the reasons around. I mean, you mentioned housing. And there are people <clears> suffering, clearly, but a lot of them who own their own houses or on fixed mortgages haven't even felt that pain yet.
1: But the housing prices See, you know. have fallen, right?
2: Housing prices are starting to fall. But does that actually impact anything? Consumer confidence, maybe.
1: Well, interestingly, I mean, you could say that if you listen to the house builders, it's the first time buyers were on strike, effectively. Now, are they spending the cash they were saving for those deposits into the economy? Hence, that's why it's been more resilient. We won't know that probably for three years until the data comes through. It's it's possible. Or are they just saving that money and looking to use that deposit in 12 months or 24 months time? Again, we won't know the answer to that, unfortunately. I think it does matter really from us in terms of from an opportunity perspective, actually, because I think the guilt market is interesting at these kind of levels. And we've been increasing duration in the in both the core funds and the sustainable funds. And in strategic growth fund at the moment, which is kind of the the, the medium risk fund, the biggest fund, um, we're at seven years, which is I don't think we've been anywhere near that it's since inception. And, and, you know, why are we doing that? Well, because if you think about it, if you're yielding between 46 and 4.9% over a longer duration from current levels, you're now getting paid, one, to take the risk of buying gilts, and two, if we see a breakdown in that correlation that we've seen with equ- equities and bonds over the last couple of years, if we do see a recession, and if the Bank of England has over-tightened, and I noticed that Bailey's now supposedly saying we've gone as far as we need to, we think. Well, we'll see. That uh, Probably means 50 basis point rise next meeting. But let's, let's just take him to his word. that they're, they're on pause and watch mode, which I think actually is quite sensible. If they've over-tightened, and the housing market could move quite quickly, i will we'll go on to the housing market a little bit more in a minute, but you could see yields come down really quickly, and actually you're going to make money from that. And also, you've got potential diversifier, to, to your point, to an earnings recession, albeit we don't have much in UK equity domestic earnings, but nevertheless, from our point of view, that's a, a very interesting risk-reward trade, right? So gilts look very interesting. Do we want to go to full duration picture and overweight? No. I mean, when I say overweight, I mean overweight from a risk perspective. No, we don't. We still think, you know, the third year could go to 6%. It could go even higher. We've got to make sure we don't anchor around where we've been for the last 15 years because the last fifteen years wasn't normal, right? So there is every chance the thirty-year gilt could have six and seven. So what we're doing is incrementally increasing. Now we accelerated that increase as yields rose over the last month or so, and we've been buying fifteen and thirty-year gilts. And the short end, the short end, you're getting paid, you know, five percent plus. So that looks quite attractive. Kind of two to ten looks less interesting. And if you look at the actual yield curve, we identify something called, and this is quite <laughs> topical, the Nessie curve, <laughs> and that technical <laughs> very technical <laughs> term. And I'm copywriting that, <laughs> um, the Nessie curve, and um, basically quite hard to describe in audio. But just you know, if our listeners can just bear with you, you, will need some <laughs> imagination. Get your pencils ready. If you think about it, the short end, and um, we've got five percent. At 10-year, we're 4.6, so you've got a downward-sloping curve. And 30 years is about 4.7, so it flattens from 10 to 30. The 15 to 20 was yielding 4.8, so higher than 10 and 30 years, hence Nessie's hump in the middle. So we've been buying around that 15, 20-year because you're getting – now, Whether it's quite hard to know why that mid-range between 10 and 30, is it just a technical point? maybe, probably, probably. we've been taking advantage of that. And so it's quite interesting because we've not had this exposure, as I said, since we have launched the funds. So I think you're absolutely right. In terms of from a global perspective, the UK is pretty insignificant and doesn't move the dial, to be honest. But right at this minute, I think because of we are generating... UK inflation plus returns or trying to, attempting to, then the gilt market is a very important asset class right now for
2: us. And go- just going back to the UK and the strength of the economy and the resilience that we've seen so far, and I know, you know things like PMIs are turning down and not looking <clears> great, <throat> but you know the economy seems to be ticking along okay. And you also have a situation where wages, to a certain extent to me anyway, inexplicably running up. I think, which I know we've got some problems with the labour market, but even that feels remarkable. But that is certainly going to be supportive of consumer spending if people are continuing seeing wage increases coming through. Part of me has a question mark over that number. I mean, we've seen how often this data gets revised down. And and quite frankly, I think we trust the data less and less. But there are certainly areas you could point to suggest Maybe the UK can stay resilient, and because of the slightly different mortgage market, can stay resilient for longer, even in the face of higher rates. And I guess one of the things we were discussing is where might be a pain point that comes slightly out of left field. And then we got discussing around Airbnb, uh, which I think is a really interesting, very topical at the moment. It's about to join the S&P 500 in the US, US listed business. And it also has just seen some regulatory pressure in New York. Uh, whereby they have basically said that unless you are staying there and hosting and hosting a room, you're not allowed to sort of let out the entire apartment. So that's quite a big clampdown, um, and that's going to have its own changes on the local market. Probably increase hotel prices. Actually, it's probably an mm-hmm. inflationary <laughs> pressure. Maybe, but you know, you could easily see that happening in the UK, where we've got a housing crisis. Um, yeah. I could easily see Cornish Council doing it.
0: What's interesting when I was, when I was looking at it as well is it has kind of spread across a lot of different cities. So in Florence, for example, they banned short-term rentals in the centre in June of this year as well. And even in places like London, there are some bans already. So it's like maximum 90 days a year that you can do short-term rentals. Very similar in San Fran as well, where the host has to live there for 75% of the year. I think Amsterdam as well, they have a 30 day limit as well. So you can only do short term rentals for 30 days in the year. So I think that kind of spreading across cities has already started to happen.
1: Also so it wouldn't are, be
0: surprising if it continues.
1: No, I, I agree. Also, apparently in Canada now, to stop foreign ownership, which is a slight tangent, but I think potentially linked, they're looking to stop foreign buyers of, of, of owning empty properties that you have to you if you're buying a, a, a purchasing a property in canada you have to provide evidence you're going to live in it. yeah
0: that's one of the ways they're doing it as well
1: yeah so why does this matter I mean, obviously you won't understand the social aspects of this but in terms of thinking about the housing market and something that's what's different this time what's difficult to actually measure is how many airbnb properties are out there that, that, that the new buy to let market but where's you know, buy-to-let, which was heavily leveraged and in 2008, ca- came unstuck. But at least if you had tenants, they were on relatively 12-month long leases. There was an element of income security. With Airbnb, there's not. Mm-hmm. So just throw this out there. If, you, if, you, if you're someone who's owning, you know, six of these Cornish properties and you're using them for Airbnb, <coughs> and now you've just seen the UK housing market drop 5% and you're seeing restrictions coming in, And by the way, we may have a Labour government next year. They've talked about rent controls. I don't think they'll do it, but they've certainly talked about it. You've got some serious political intervention yet again, and this is not just a UK factor, this is globally. What's the impact of those people owning those properties? Now, if I was sitting there right now, I'd be going, "Mm, do I want to be the first out?
2: So what I was thinking about this was if you're a homeowner you live in your house, and you have got a second home somewhere that you Airbnb to get a little bit of extra income. You probably own it outright, um, or you might. I, in my gut, I sort of feel like most probably that's an investment. It's long term. They're kind of unless it's mortgaged on their principal yes, property. Yes, true. Well, what, but what I was thinking about is how many businesses have sprung up that are sort of ultimately just Airbnb. I've did some digging. I don't know how reliable this data is because it's on something- I like a caveat there. It, yeah. yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, it's called Inside Airbnb and it is an anti-Airbnb lobbying site. So you've got to be very careful about those figures. But according to them, and this is just a London example, there are 15,000 properties listed by hosts with more than 10 listings. So that wow. to me, so like wow. yeah, that to me suggests business. Yeah. That to me suggests leverage, probably, because, you know, maybe you're extremely wealthy and you own all 10. I'm or sure you're <laughs> Or money laundry. But that is enough properties, I would suggest, that higher rates in those and those mortgages where you're allowed to Airbnb, typically they're either floating, short term. Okay, you put down more deposit normally, so maybe there's not quite as big a mortgage, but if those properties are starting to get hit with higher Mm, rates and then suddenly they're getting squeezed on both sides because there's a clamp down on where they're getting their income from, you could just start to see some false sellers.
1: I think that's right and you can't measure that. We're not saying subprime, right? Let's be very clear. We're not trying to frighten anybody but there's there's definitely a new, it's not an asset class, I don't know how you describe it but this wasn't around 10, 15, 20 so you can't model this stuff, right? You know, it goes back to our hatred of models so it's difficult to know the materiality of this risk but I think it's important to acknowledge the risk and I think all of that and this is global as we said it's not just a UK phenomenon but in the UK I think we're particularly vulnerable and yeah, we talk about housing crisis not enough houses in the UK is that actually true are there enough houses just not enough houses available and that's an easy political football to kick right this feels quite a high probability of that intervention to free this up because airbnb is there to be kicked right now and if you're on the wrong side of that i'm sorry um, so all of this points to me to the fact that there's some significant material overhangs to the uk economy uh, and all the supports i would say this is because it's what we're doing our incremental increase of duration in the gilt market and i've uh, yeah, we've got targets where we'll continue to do that as yields move higher. because remember, now you're getting paid. So yes, we, the guilt market might still fall from here, but you're getting paid four and a half percent while you're waiting for it to turn.
0: Okay, so moving on to something quite different now, DE and I. So in honour of National Inclusion Week, which is taking place during the final week of September, we thought it would be interesting to talk about diversity in the context of investing and how we approach the topic with the companies we both own and are thinking of buying. As is the case with lots of social issues, that are both opportunities and risks for companies to consider when talking about diversity, especially because it is an emotive topic with differing opinions. It's clearly a much more prominent part of how companies market themselves and gain customers now more than ever before, but there are some companies which tread the line more successfully than others. So David, throwing to you first, what's your approach to looking at these sort of topics with companies?
1: Thank you, Rahab. And it's very easy for fund managers and investors to walk away from this topic. It's clearly, as as you mentioned, it's very emotive, it creates a lot of passion, and rightly so. But what we're going to focus on today is is really looking at it from an investment and a pragmatic perspective. And I think the first thing I would say is, generally speaking, we like companies that are diverse in all f- manners, because ultimately, why wouldn't you want a management team made of the most talented people, giving equal opportunity, with different experiences, because you want the company to reflect the customer base, because then it's going to talk and market to that customer base much more effectively. And we've seen it, we've talked about this in the past about Western companies have made mistakes going into China, for example, in the past with awful marketing sales strategies, trying to bring a Western culture into an Eastern market. And this is just, it's similar actually. And, and we're seeing lots of mistakes and there's some high profile ones that, you know, in the press recently, Anheuser-Busch, Coca-Cola via Costa, uh, et cetera. And, in some of these cases it's had a material impact on the share price so we can't ignore it okay so diversity can be good uh, and should be good if it's executed properly and it's embedded in the culture of that business and that senior management i mean the c-suite is um, fully embraced and accountable to that where you see it go wrong is where companies try to show that they're doing something. It's not embedded in the culture. It is not managed properly from the C-suite because it's purely driven by maybe the marketing and sales function where it's under a lower level of management control where often it, the intentions are, are well-meant to try and attract a new niche, niche client base or whatever. But ultimately, you you help one side and, and you alienate another. And of course, inclusion is about including everybody, not including the minorities necessarily and excluding the majorities because anheuser Bush found you don't really want to upset your core client base. And when Coca-Cola was involved with the Georgia voting ID debate and they came out in favour of saying, that the, what the Republicans were proposing was anti-democratic and they upset the Republican voting base, You know, Coca-Cola quickly came back from that and said actually, you know, Republicans buy Coke as well, which is why the Costa situation was was, was odd. So from our perspective, DE&I embedded properly, we see that as a tick in the box. We want companies that fully embrace and we take it seriously and that they take it seriously. The minute I get very nervous is when i sense it's not doing that it's virtue signaling this corporate values what does that mean it 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 it, it you know you, you can't analyze that and that starts starts to get a bit risky when you talk to the ceo of a company about this the, the, these issues and they look at you but, oh yeah i've got someone in our dni department who can talk to you about that well that's when you start to get a little bit nervous around this area so it is a difficult topic to discuss, but we, we shouldn't shy away from it because you know, with social media, you can't even you know keep these issues contained in a regional market. These these stories, or negative stories, I should say, get out fast and they rapidly move across time zones, and then you're in, in real pain. As investors, that's not good. So what we do is when we're talking to companies you know and when we're engaging with companies and sometimes there's DEI issues sometimes it's other issues but not necessarily linked to financial issues we've got to try and assess this risk and you know unfortunately like a lot of risks that aren't necessarily quantitative it's not easy and and it's about people and that's why meeting management teams is so important
2: you talk about making you nervous everything around this topic makes me nervous because it's I think it's very difficult to, I was going to use the term win, but I don't really mean the term win. It just It's just difficult not to run into trouble. Um, and, you know, with we talked about politics. And I remember when we talked around Coke and their, their foray into politics and they went in on one side and then they rolled back and they were like, actually, we should have recognised that our client base is on both sides of the political spectrum. And, and for me, just don't want companies getting involved in politics at all, much rather see them stay in the middle. They're gonna fund fund both sides, maybe. And many do actually. Yeah, exactly. Because exactly. that's what democracy is all about. Um, yeah. But with with D and I it it's more tricky. It's probably even more emotion, emotive quite often. Um, Craig used, used the phrase it's a symptom of our bifurcated society. Wow. Uh, <laughs> which I which I really enjoyed. I said I'd give them credit for that one. Um, but just how difficult it is we've reeled off these Businesses that have struggled. I mean, there were lots of them. Yeah, actually, you know, Target have had problems from putting Pride produce on their aisles, and there was such a backlash. Now, the thing is, it was tricky because, I was saying, some of it was being marketed to children, that got some people riled up, and there were confrontations, and they ended up pulling that merchandise out. Now, the problem is there is they've alienated everybody yeah. with that, yeah. right? Because, well, at least that's inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that is the problem. I think with, with the inclusive perspective, yes, you, know, you want inclusivity, but ultimately I think it's sometimes just too difficult to bring all of your customer base under the same tent. And I don't think it's often possible. And so you're right. I think from a certain perspective, you know, you need this, D and I to be embedded. And so, you know, people understand what the company's trying to achieve. There's contr- some an element of control around it because if you go into certain more motive spaces, you need to be very careful about the messaging around that. And we talked about Nike and Nike with Colin Ka- Kaepernick. Yes. Kneeling during the national anthem. And of course that got some people very hot under the collar. Actually, you found that his shirts were selling out. His number seven shirt was selling out, even though he didn't play that seat like for the rest of that season or something like that. And so with Nike, I guess perhaps they're of the view that actually they took a bit of a stance with a view that they think they know who their customer base is and did that increase sales or decrease sales on, a, on an overall basis, I don't know. And I'm not sure if that's where companies should be going with this. Should ultimately it be about trying to improve the business, grow revenue and sales, or is this a different well, side th- of
1: this? this? This comes back to, yeah, if you're an edgy fashion company that's trying to sell, you know, trainers to people under, I'm not talking about Nike now, I'm talking just, uh, you know, hypothetically, if you want to attract 25-year-olds of a diverse nature, then you probably want to be edgy in your marketing, and, and that's okay. And you're going to alienate people like me over 50, <laughs> right? Fine, that's part yeah. of your business. That, that That's Okay. Right. Where it goes wrong is where you get these big companies that, well, oh, we must be cool and, and get into this space. And unfortunately, they, they, it's just, it's like your dad dancing, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's just inappropriate and it goes horribly wrong. And, and, and how many times have we seen companies on their Twitter feeds or their social media where it's probably quite low down the managerial grades that are overseeing those sort of more modern mediums of, of comms and advertising that it goes wrong because we'll leave the youngsters or we'll leave these people over here but they can do that and then they're not recognizing the unintended consequences again well meaning most of the time this stuff is and a force for good but ultimately as a, as a, as a company management team you are responsible for all the stakeholders right
0: yeah and I think Where it becomes quite difficult for us, actually, we talked about it being an emotive topic is we kind of have to take our own emotions out of the topic as well. So no matter what our own beliefs around a lot of this stuff, we have to take each company quite individually. And at the end of the day, it's about us assessing, as you said, David, what is the effect on going to be on the share price? And that will be very individual to that specific company. So as we've spoken about, there are some companies who've done this very successfully and then there are others who perhaps haven't. And it's about us trying to understand what that company is trying to achieve. You know, Do they understand their customer base? Do they understand their market? Rather than kind of colouring that with our own views on some of these topics, as we might have quite specific beliefs in a lot of these different areas, but it's not always relevant to... The financial
1: side. Of you're quite right. I mean, that, that, that does become difficult when you find you're voting against a company that's doing what you want it to do. But, you know, we have to take the, 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 the rational financial view of this. We can't let our own personal views get involved. You know, it's that in the same way we don't in any, in, from a financial perspective, right? We, our job is to appraise the quality of the business, the strategy, the future earnings, the growth. It's unfortunate, but we have to take it back to because that's what we're paid for right not big not for what we think but i, I as i say I, your point's really well made Rayhan. because this is a bottom-up issue actually and it's quite it's, it's quite time consuming we spend a lot of time looking at this stuff and, and engagement it's taking more and more of our time because getting more and more complicated to whatever craig said he's right <laughs> right Be- because that kind of binary views that we're seeing and and how and how societies are splitting apart that makes this area even more risky than it was 10 years ago and we can't ignore it and so we find ourselves in having some quite interesting and difficult conversations at times about each of the companies that we own but that time we've got to spend but it is bottom up and you can't ignore it and you've got to embrace that risk and embrace the challenge
2: I would just finish with reason you can't ignore it. Bud Light lost 15% of sales for their misstep. Disney have cancelled Snow White. And Target pulled all of their produce off the shelves and sales were down 5%. So there are very clear real-world impacts yeah. on the top line. And it's not going to get any stronger. less,
1: is it? I mean, I think this is the point. This is not going to get any easier.
0: So following on from DE&I and also some retailers that have been going bust, we've talked about it already, but it felt apt to speak in more detail about Nike as our stock for the episode. Now, Nike is a company which has always leaned into speaking up about social and political issues, and as we've mentioned, has done so very successfully. Their brand and marketing has always been innovative and forward-thinking, which is why we've liked the company for a while. It has been a little weaker recently, though, so, Will, what are your thoughts on the company and why Nike is one of the very few retailers we do own in the portfolios?
2: Well, having just watched Air, it was very important yes, to revisit. Re- I watched revisit. it last night. <laughs> I, w- I watched it last week. Yeah. Preparation See, we- for the podcast. <laughs> <as well. laughs> we do our research, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, I don't know how, how much it's based on truth. I mean, you've read shoe Dogs. I think there's there's elements of truth in there as well. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant film. Anyway, I'm not getting carried away with that. Um, but with Nike, there are a number of reasons why we've owned that. We have discussed how we should kind of do a stock that hasn't done so well recently, rather than talking about one that's done fantastic well. Nike, over the longer term, has been a very successful business for us. You know, I think we've pretty much owned it since we moved direct in 2015. There were a number of reasons why. One of the ones was they were getting more control over the distribution channels. So taking control of price ultimately and not selling through channels where people were just discounting away their shoes, turning over inventory and actually sort of devaluing the brand, arguably. Can can I
1: just interject there? Yeah, because I just bought a pair of Merrells, just uh, too much information probably. But when I went on the Merrells website, saw the price of the Merrell shoe I wanted and then Googled the shoe and managed to get a 20% discount on a discounter. It's exactly the same shoe. And that's what Nike was trying to stop. Because if you think what Apple does, if you buy an Apple phone, it's the same price for you buy in the Apple store or you buy it anywhere else. And that's what Nike has been trying to achieve is, is that amplification of retail. I think the retailer's recommended price sticks, which is why Sports Direct fell out of favor. But Actually, Adidas were doing the same thing, saying you've got to stop discounting even though there are cheaper shoes because you're destroying the brand. And where Nike wants to get to is more like Louis Vuitton
2: where you protect your brand and your premium. And I think that's that's actually a really important point because whilst I appreciate that's where Nike were going, we've always been wary of treating it as a luxury business. And at times it's been priced like one. And that has tended to be the time when we've taken profits out of Nike when it's up at 30 times. It's a fantastic business but I don't think you can put it quite in the same part as luxury, albeit its marketing's been absolutely fantastic. And obviously, the Jordan range has been absolutely incredible. Their move to direct-to-consumer was one of the other key reasons. Um, So, you know, literally selling through their website or some of their online stores. Um, so not just using third party distributors. And then China, where for us, success in China is very, very difficult. But for us, there are certain brands we think are so global, so big, that actually they can do a very good job in a market like China, where obviously there's a fantastic runway for growth if you get it right. And been plenty of people who've gone in there and, and come out with their tail between their legs. But something like Nike who felt that global branding could definitely crack that market. And for years it was a very, very good growth market for it. Now given what has happened and all the disruption it's been quite difficult to understand how the underlying bit of Nike has done you know if you think at one point all of the shops you know retail shops through COVID that it was selling through were closed and so it couldn't sell at all but then it was selling much more through its website Um, people spending more on things like shoes because they were at home and I mean, one could argue if you weren't going anywhere, why would you buy shoes? But anyway, you seem to do very well out of it. And a secret
1: like, jogging. Yeah,
2: the huge disruption around that. And then, of course, China, which is so important to them on complete lockdown. And I'm not sure, entirely sure. I don't think their sort of e commerce business in China was sort of as material and up and running as, as it has been over in the US, for example. So, really difficult to understand how well it's been doing. And certainly, the results out of China have looked a little weak and how much of that is due to the disruption that we've seen there, Or how much is due to maybe increased competition? And maybe it is they're finding it a harder market than they thought.
1: Yeah, and also they've gone back into some of those distributors to Sports Direct. Um, so they've not hit the targets they wanted on direct to consumer. However, what they have done by going back into those big distributors, they've only gone in there on the basis of new contracts saying, you cannot discount. You have to hold the line on price. What they've also done is cut all the small distributors, which has really upset the local sports shops in lots of small towns, which is quite sad. But you can understand it from Nike's perspective. And as you were saying, the margins haven't maybe increased as much as we would like. And it's quite hard to get the colour around that because of COVID and how it's distorted demand. So it has been weak. We still think long term it's a great company, but... It's going to take another probably 12 months or so before we start to really understand what the trends are to underlying earnings and margin. But for now, we're adding on weakness.
2: And hopefully, air is going to be a nice booster for the Jordan Uh, range. (laughs) Yeah, great film. So
0: to end the show, as usual, we have AOB or any other business, which is our opportunity to complain about something which has really annoyed us this month. I've had a few months off the podcast, so it was quite easy for me to think of something. So I thought I'd kick off this time. Now, as some of the team might be aware, I'm trying to book a holiday maybe in the next couple of months. And the process of booking flights I found has become a lot more annoying since pretty much every single airline these days doesn't include any baggage in their ticket price. So I feel like before, you know, you would expect it from the likes of EasyJet and Ryanair, fine, you're on a two to three hour flight, maybe you don't need any luggage. But these days, it's all pretty much all airlines. They're just saying in their prices, there's just a handbag, even if the flight is, say, six to seven hours. So you kind of feel like you're getting a good deal. And then by the end of it, the ticket price is basically doubled. So, yeah, that's that's really getting on my nerves this month.
2: I feel your pain. I find <laughs> that very, very annoying.
0: Yeah, the price is just a catfish at this point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, David? Um, sunflowers. <laughs> so, Obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, so I've never been a big fan of sunflowers, uh, to be honest. <laughs> in
0: your <the> everyday life.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think it must go back to something in my childhood where we had to grow them at school because there wasn't much to do in Wales in the late 60s. Anyway, my next door neighbors have just decided they're going to grow some sunflowers. And they're really tall and they stare over the fence at me. And every time I'm sat in my back garden, I feel like I've been watched. Because <laughs> you, you know what? For those who don't know, sunflower, big yellow thing with a big brown middle. <laughs> and there's these five really tall sunflowers all staring at me all the time and it makes me feel really they, they're really quite sinister actually and like, like,
0: what if your neighbour listens to this
1: <laughs> I, I think that's highly unlikely and if so I, I apologise they look lovely um,
2: <laughs> you're going to be one of those people in the papers for you know mysterious sunflower disappearance they
1: need a haircut you know uh, so, and they're not jolly they're just sinister so maybe a bit of snipping going on <laughs>
2: Will so I'm going to go with the current heat wave, and oh. it's not and it's not because you know our producer passed out because of the heat uh, <laughs> more recently, but because I am having to go to Marbella to see some clients uh, early next week. Oh, it's a tough, job. it tough is life. tough life, tough life. Yeah. So I thought, World's I, smallest violin. I thought I'd sneak out early and, and go and have the weekend down there and get some heat, and this was obviously before we suddenly have the best weather of the summer. So I'm now going to Marlborough. It's actually a little cooler than it is in the UK, um, but perhaps that'll be a little bit better for some than others.
1: Craig's in Ipswich and Norwich today, so I think he <laughs> is likely to be very unsympathetic.
2: <laughs> That's
0: it from us. Thank you for joining, and we'd love for you to join again for next month's episode of The Sharp End. If you didn't have a chance to listen last time, please do go back and give it a go. Last month, we discussed model portfolios and how well our predictions have fared since 2019, as well as the growing animal health sector and which stocks we've bought to gain some exposure. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Also, please don't forget to hit the subscribe or follow button and feel free to leave us a rating and review as well. If you'd like to hear more about the Rathburn multi-asset funds, please do speak to your usual Rathburn sales contact or visit the website at rathbonefunds.com. Thanks again for listening.